All right, we are starting a new series this morning. Uh, we finished up Luke. Ben finished up Luke for, with us uh, last week. And so now we're flipping all the way to the front of the book. Okay, we're going to, uh, to the life of Moses. And, and his story is found in Exodus chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to Exodus chapter 1. If you're with us in person don't have your own Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the seat you're welcome to use. Um, if you're with us online, grab your Bible as well. If not, you can just listen as, we, as I read through the passages. But um, before we jump into the text this morning, um, as we look at the life of Moses, he is a major Old Testament figure. And he's one that, that fits in the storyline, right, of God's chosen people, of the Israelite nation. And, and that's where, again, the Old Testament follows the story of, of Israel. Um, as you look at that Old Testament storyline, there's just a phrase, right, that, that started this. This first covenant started with Abraham. And that's a very significant name in, in Scripture and in God's plan of redemption. And, and then we see there's this, again, common phrase with three names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and again, we see that phrase pop up a lot, even throughout the Old Testament, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now, as we see it again, they are fathers and sons. They're, they're, it's three generations, right, of, of the family that started, that eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons. Okay, and those 12 sons became the tribes of Israel, okay, as they grew into a nation. Now, one of those sons was named Joseph. Okay, we looked at Joseph earlier this last year. If you're just curious about Joseph in his life, you can go back and listen to that message series. It's available online. Um, and so Joseph, again, was one of Jacob's sons, and he's the guy who brought the whole family and ultimately the entire nation of Israel into Egypt. It was under his, his rule. And again, we talked about all that in that, that last series when we looked at Joseph's life. And so that's where we step into the story now with Moses. Moses is the next big leader of Israel after Joseph. And so as we do that, we're going to just jump right into his story. We're going to start with Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. So again, Exodus 1, starting at verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In, in time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending the entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. And eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And I want to pause right there after these first eight verses because there's a lot of information, right, that's thrown out here in these, in these verses. And it's foundational information. It's one that's just, again, setting the stage, right, for what is about to happen next. Okay, as we see this there, it describes Joseph and the nation ending up in Egypt, right? Uh, and then notice it says that, that it kind of fast forwards, right, through history. It skips over several years. In fact, it skips over a few generations. In fact, and if you caught it, of how many generations from Joseph, from Jacob, Joseph, to where we are currently in Exodus as we pick up? It's three. I'll just tell you the answer. It's three generations. 
And we get three generations later. Now, this is, this is significant. I think we see this because the reality, this is a cause that we see even in our world today, is that everything can change in three generations. Okay, everything can change in three generations. Okay, in fact, this is, this is a, there's, this is a normal rule in business. If you look at it in business, you, can, you Google it, okay? There's a three-generation rule in the world of business. Okay, and that the three-generation rule in business says, right, that you see that the first generation is the one that builds a company and builds wealth and success in a new company, right? The second generation is the one that maintains that company and that wealth. And then the third generation is traditionally the one who squanders it okay, and lose, ends up losing the business and losing their wealth. Okay, three generations. Okay, now, again, this is a, a general rule, right? It's a stereotypical, um, you know, process, right? That, but concept that we see has happened, right? And it continues to happen over and over and over again. Okay, but so, and I just bring that up to say is that we see here in these intro verses, right? That, again, everything can change in three generations. Now, we can look at this as, as, a, as a bad news concept, Right, just like I just described it in business, right? This is bad news, right? That in three generations, family wealth can be completely gone. Or a successful business can be run into the ground, right? In literally in three generations. But the, the, let's take that out of business and kind of realize everything can change in three generations. Now, again, we can look at the negative side of that, right? Of saying that, that, Again, even the faith of a family can be completely eradicated in three generations. Right? If you have, again, the, uh, uh, the first generation that takes God seriously and they, they follow Christ and all they do, and, and, and then the next generation kind of doesn't take it quite as seriously, right? And, and they, they don't attend church as much and they, they don't consistently tithe and, and they don't study the scriptures themselves and, and they're not teaching their kids anything about who God is. And then that third generation suddenly is just, has no faith at all. Okay, now that's tragic. I mean, I think we see that, right? That's the, the negative side of this concept. But the, the positive side is also true. Everything can change in three generations. Right? We can also go from no faith, right, to an incredibly strong faith heritage in three generations. Right? And when we think about this concept, right, just the bigger picture concept, I think that we, we learn here from the very opening verses is that everything can change in three generations. And again, we see this concept happening in the American church today, right? Have you looked at this as we see generations shifting and now even with, again, the millennial generation, right? Like just everything changed with them. And now we're into this next Gen Z generation, right? And as they're graduating high school and seeing what they're doing. And, and again, the good news is everything can change in three generations. The bad news is everything can change in three generations. Right, and as we see, this is the context, again, that we're, we're introduced to here um, as we set up this uh, situation for Moses, okay? And so let, let's continue reading. I want to pick up again right where we left off, pick up again here at verse 8. It says, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what had been done. And he said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. 
We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more uh, alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. All right, now again, I want to just pause there, right, in, in, in this first section. And as, as we're, we're being taught this, the environment, right, that Moses is going to be born into. Okay, and as everything has changed to these generations, and, and we see this, um, the these verses here that we picked up on here, as we see in 8, is everything changes. And then we go into verses 9, uh, 10, and then 11 through 14. And in these verses, we see three steps of how to make wise decisions. Okay, now the reality, though, is what we actually see happening in this text is actually what not to do. Okay, they, they show of how not to make wise decisions in the way that Egypt's rulers work through this process. But again, we can see that from the negative side and say, okay, this is how then to make wise, godly decisions. Okay, the first step we see is, is in verse 9. And the first step of making wise decision is to assess the facts of the situation. Hey, just look at the facts. Okay, I need to take my emotions out of it. I need to take all this out. And we just look at the facts. And in fact, that's exactly what they do in verse 9. And if you look back at that, the, the leader of Egypt says, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. Okay, those are the facts of the situation. And he's saying that, that's just the reality of where we are, right? Like, we had no, uh, no intention of this. So, I mean, we brought them. Again, they knew nothing about Joseph. They knew nothing about his leadership or about why Israel was even there. But they're just looking at the facts and saying, they're, they're powerful. They're numerous, right? And, and we might have a problem on our hands, right? This needs to be addressed, okay? There's the facts of the situation. And, and that's what they do, right? Right? Um, Again, they, they, they look at the facts, and the situation was real, right? Israel was prosperous, and it was growing. Okay, this is one of those moments you look at, it and you're like, well, he's not wrong, right? Kind of moments. I might not like it, but, he, but, it, but that's what the facts present. Right, then the next step, though, once we realize where we are, and we've assessed the facts of the situation— Step two is to formulate a plan for, the, for different potential outcomes. And this is where we need to look at the situation and all the facts that we've already assessed and look at it from all different angles and all different possibilities. Okay, not just one side of possibilities. And yet that's what we see the leader of Egypt do here, though. He only looks at one possibility. Right, like I said, this is an example of what not to do, Right? He only looks at the negative side of this potential, right? Because what does he say in verse 10? He says, if, they, if we don't do anything, right, they're going to become strong and powerful. And then he says, if we end up in a war, right, then they might side with the enemy and then we're in trouble. Okay, no, notice what he does there. 
right? There's a lot of ifs, right? There's a lot of, of fears that are, that are communicated there that, that are not grounded in the facts, right? And he only looks at it from one angle. I mean, that absolutely is a possibility, right? I mean, sure, it's a viable possibility, hey, but he doesn't even think about the other side of that coin, Right, because the other side of that coin is, hey, we have this nation that we're co- combined with, and we don't even know why, right? Because we forgot about all the history. Everything's changed in these three generations. But yet they're being strong and prosperous and numerous. What if they sided with us? Right, again, he doesn't even present that as an option. Right, because they could have looked at it and said, hey, we're here with Israel. Like, they were on good terms, right? They made the bad terms based on the, the next step of their decision, right? They were still on good terms with Israel. They, they should have looked at the other angle as, hey, they're on our side. Let's keep it that way. Right? Let's encourage them. Right? Let's, let's join forces. Let's, let's be together. Right? So then if we're in war, then we will automatically win because they're with us. Right? That was the other angle that they never looked at. And I think we need to remember right, that we cannot just go down the road of irrational fears and assumptions of a negative outcome. Right? And that's exactly what the rulers of Egypt do. Right? Is they, there's a, that's what's in verse 10, is a list of irrational fears and assumptions of a negative outcome. The assumption of the Egyptian king was that they would side with their enemies. Again, was this an accurate assumption? Well, we don't even know. Right? Was, was it an irrational fear? Well, quite possibly. Right? And, and yet, again, could the opposite could have just as likely it happened. Right? And then we see as we, then if we formulate a plan based on what we think these potential outcomes might be, right? Well, if they start to turn off, then this is what we should do, right? But hey, or maybe we should just, you know, butter them up right now to make sure that they choose our side, right? Again, formulate a plan of all the different potential outcomes. And then step three, right, is to carry out the decision and adjust as needed. Okay, carry out the decision and adjust as needed. Now, that's exactly what Egypt does, isn't it? Right? They carry out their plan based on the only negative, these irrational fears and negative assumptions. They, and they carry out the plan um, because the choice had been made, right, is, well, now we need to just make them our slaves and we need to rule over them, right, and, and make them stop being successful and multiplying and growing in numbers, growing in power, right? And so, again, they were going to take control of this nation. So the choice was made. And, and then Pharaoh says, now this is the plan, right? And they, they executed the plan. We're going to make them our slaves. Now, as we, as we read through this, right, is in those verses, we see that the plan backfires. Right? As they start to, to, um, to execute the plan, okay, we see that, um, again, that that Israel just got stronger and stronger. The more they were oppressed, the more that God blessed them. Right? And, and the plan literally backfires in front of him. And with that said, is that Pharaoh then dictated the outcome of his plan of action. In fact, this became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, he fed the problem right, by making them their, sla- his, their slaves. And the more he oppressed them, the more that God blessed them. The more strong they became, the more numerous they, they, they got, the more they expanded. And, and, and the plan absolutely backfired. Right? And that's exactly what we see in verse 12. 
where it says, but the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. Right? And so they had this negative assumption, right? And, and these irrational fears. And now these irrational fears became very real fears. Right? And yet realized they were feeding the problem. Right? They created the problem themselves by the way that they treated the Israelites. And so there's a couple big picture concepts that I think I want to point out from this verse and from this whole situation. Right, again, of how not to make wise decisions, right, as we, as we look at the example of the Egyptians. First off, is we need to understand that if we act out of fear, we can end up causing our own problems. Okay, if we act out of fear, we can end up causing our own problems. And you see, that's exactly what the rules of Egypt did. Right, they acted out of fear, and they ended up causing their own problems. And, and, and the more that, again, their, and their adjustment was, well, then we'll just persecute them more. Right? And the more that they made that adjustment, the stronger Israel got. Right? And they were then, they were feeding the problem. Okay? But the key here, again, is not only them causing their own problems, but the fact that they were acting out of fear. Okay? Because that's exactly what fear is, Right? is false expectations appearing real. Right? That's one acronym for fear. Right? Now, again, this is, this is God's holy nation, right? These are the people, they were there with Egypt. And now, again, Scripture tells us, right, that God's love casts out all fear. Right? Again, the other side of this coin was they could have allied with Israel. They could have gotten, found unity with Israel and and God would have blessed them with Israel. But again, as we see, they ended up kind of feeding their own problems. Now, the other thing that we learn, I think, from this verse, right, and that from the outcome of this plan, okay, is that God's plan will play out. But we choose which side of that plan we're on. Okay, God's plan is going to play out, right? God's plan was these anointed people of the nation of Israel. Right? God's plan was he was going to protect them. They were going to flourish. Right? He was going to be made known to the world through this nation. That was going to happen because God was behind it. Now the Egyptians literally made the decision on which side they were going to be on. Right? And they decided to work against God's plan in this moment instead of surrender and join forces. Right? And again, God's plan is going to play out. Okay, because God is God. He is the ultimate king. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is sovereign. He is just. He's loving. And God's plan will play out. Now again, step out of the Old Testament and just the, the people of Israel for a moment and let's just look at what is God's ultimate plan. God's ultimate plan is to save the world. Right? That is the gospel message. That's why Jesus was sent. Right? Jesus came... God so loved the world that he sent his son, right, to save us. I mean, that is God's plan. And guess what? That plan is playing out. 
It played out through the Old Testament story. It played out through the sending of the Messiah. It, it played out through the life, the sinless life of Jesus, his death on a cross, his resurrection, right? And, and, and it, it's playing out now in the, in the church era, right, as we're waiting for Christ's second return. God wins. His plan will play out. And it's our choice whether we decide to unify with God and surrender ourselves to his plan and receive his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, or we can fight against him. We get to choose which side we're on, right? Because of our own free will. And to say that, God's plan is going to play out. Yeah, and we have the choice to accept Christ as our Savior, to join the journey of faith, to, to align in unity with Christ, and to move forward on the winning side. Or we can choose to reject Christ, right, and do life on our own, right? And, and in essence, even for eternity, we're creating our own problem, right, because God has already provided a way out, right, through the death and resurrection of Christ. We get to choose. Okay, what, what are we going to choose? Are we going to receive Christ our Savior? Are we going to, you know, submit to his plan because his plan's playing out, right? Or are we going to push God away and say, no, God, I don't need you. I'll do it on my own. And scripture is very clear on how that plan plays out. You know, as we see this, right, we know that these big picture concepts about how do we make wise decisions, right? We see Egypt and their, their leaders at this time were not making wise decisions. All right, and then we see, though, that now he's in so deep, right, that he just continues to compound the problems. Let's continue the story here in Exodus 1. We're going to read verses 15 through 22. It says, Then Pharaoh the king of Egypt gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. And when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders, and they allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? And the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more uh, vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Now again, we read this, and, and probably you read this, and just, you're, you just cringe, right? I, I mean, really? That's, that... But I'm not, I'm not going to go into about killing babies right now. I mean, we could go there, but I think it's pretty obvious, right, what God's will. Okay, to say that, as we look at, at this, this story, as this continues, right, what do we learn from the midwives, right, in this situation? Right, what we learn from them, again, because now we see them making some pretty wise decisions. Right, and again, as Egypt continues to go down this, this rabbit hole. Okay, first off, is what we learn from the midwives is that God needs to come first in our lives, no matter what. God needs to be first, no matter what. Again, they were faced, difficult decision, right? They were told by their superior, right, a person of authority, right, to go against 
what God had convicted them to do. Right? And yet they, as we see, didn't do that, right? They stayed true to who God was and to what the job that God had given them. Okay, again, God came first, no matter what. Even in their job, right? Literally, their lives were at stake by them not killing the Hebrew boys. But yet, they stayed true to what God had put and convicted them in their own heart, right? They said, and that's exactly what it says. They stayed true to God, right? Their entire um, motivation, right, of keeping God first is played out in, or laid out for us in verse 17. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. I encourage you to underline because they feared God, right? That was their motivation. And they allowed the boys to live. Again, is God truly first in your life? Is God truly first in your life? Because if we learn from the midwives, he absolutely was for them, right? Even when their job was at stake, God was still first. Hey, but think about, is God truly first in your life? Not, not just in your job, but in everything in your life. Is God first in your schedule? Is God first in your finances? Is God first in your social life? Is God first in your relationships? Is God truly first? Hey, and we see, again, this foundational question, right, that, that the midwives were, that this was a hill to die on for them, right? It's like, no, we will not go against God even if the king tells us to, and he did tell them to. I say, no, God is first, no matter what. And then we see, play out for them, right? If God is truly first in your life, then it leads to a life of blessings. Right, because they chose God, and notice, God continued to bless Israel, and he not only just blessed Israel as a whole, but he specifically blessed these, these ladies, Right? I mean, that's exactly what it says in verses 20 and 21. That God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because they feared God, he gave them families of their own. Right? And if God is truly first in your life, then it will lead to a life of blessing. Hey, but the opposite is also true, right? If God isn't first in your life, it will lead to a life of desperation. If God isn't first in your life, it will lead to a life of desperation. Again, we see as, as Pharaoh's plan continues to backfire on him, as Israel continues to get stronger and stronger, as he continues to adjust his plan into more and more serious places, okay, he gets to the place of desperation. And that's exactly where we see, well, where we see him in verse 22. Because right? it says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Underline that phrase, all his people. Hey, because he is stepping up his desperation in his plan another notch. Because he gives an order to all the people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Okay, he's, he starts out with, with oppressing them in slavery, then he moves to the, when that backfires, he moves to the midwives and say, hey, kill all the boys, let the girls live, and then that way we'll be stronger than them. When that backfires on him, now he moves up to another. Now it's not just to the midwives. Now it's not a secret command anymore. Now it's a public one to the entire nation. Throw all of the Hebrew boys in the Nile to die. Right, he is desperate at this point. 
right, as he continues to, to be frustrated as his plan backfires. Now, Pharaoh definitely adjusted his plan, right, but not towards the good. Right, and, and after starting with the midwives and that not working, now he moves to all his people. And now we understand, right, and we get to the end of chapter 1, the current environment that Moses is born into. And this is not a pretty picture, is it? In fact, this is a pretty dire picture. And then Moses enters the story in Exodus 2, 1 through 10, okay, where it says, And about this time a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. And the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. And she put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. And soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. And when the princess opened it, she saw the baby. And the little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. And this must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. And then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. And the princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. So now as we, we again, get this, this current environment, right, that Moses is born into. And again, as we as we. Think about this situation, right? That Moses is born, she hides him for three months, okay? and then the, then the princess finds him in the river. Now, the, the most terrible thing to think about is the fact that Hebrew babies being in this river was probably not an odd sight. Okay, and again, that just really makes her skin crawl, and I get it because it makes mine crawl too. Okay, and, but then she's down there, and the odd part of, about Moses was that this Hebrew baby was in a basket. He was not drowning in the river like he was supposed to be. Right, he was in a basket. And the princess finds him. Now, in this moment, the princess is faced with a decision. Right, and her decision boils down to, does she follow her father's order and throw the Hebrew baby into the river? For him to drown, or does she not? Right, and she's faced with this decision. Now we learn some things even from this princess, okay, in the way that she makes this decision. Okay, one is we learn that during a decision, don't underestimate the power of your emotions. Okay, in the midst of a decision, do not underestimate the power of your emotions. Okay, because we see again, she knew what she was supposed to do. Right? She found a Hebrew baby. It was a boy. She was supposed to throw it in the Nile River to be killed. Okay, but notice what happens here in verse 6. Right? She says, when the princess opened it, she saw the baby, and the little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Right? She is overwhelmed with emotion in this moment. 
right? and the baby's crying. Right? She, her heart goes out to him. She's, she's overwhelmed. Right? She's felt sorry for him. Right? And then she, suddenly the decision's not so easy anymore. And when we're, when we're in the midst of a decision, don't underestimate the power of your emotions. Now again, there's, the scripture says a lot about our emotions. Okay, and in fact, scripture tells us quite a few times to not trust our emotions. Okay, and this goes back to thinking, are we going to choose God first or are we not, right? And there's all this. In fact, in the follow-up discussion questions this week, you're going to look at a lot of those verses. <laughs> okay, but don't underestimate the power of your emotions. And we have to ask the question, can I trust my emotions or can I not? Hey, don't underestimate the power of our emotions in the midst of a decision. Hey, but the other thing we learn from this princess is also, not only our emotions, but during a decision, don't underestimate the power of persuasion. Of other people's influence. Right, because we see that's exactly what happens to this princess, right? She's overcome with her emotions. And then in verses 7 and 8, it says, then this very strategically placed sister... Right, she comes over and approaches the princess. Should I go find one of the Hebrew women and nurse the baby for you? Yes, do that, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. I mean, talk about peer pressure. Right? I mean, this, this idea is planted into her mind and her heart right at this moment where she's overcome with her emotions. Right? And notice how quickly she jumps on this idea. Right, now, again, there's some awesome things we see about God's plan here, right? This, I mean, this mother, right, is, is supposed to, to kill her baby, and yet now she ends up nursing him and being paid to do it, Amen. right? And that's just the way God works, Amen. right? And when we think about that, though, when we see this whole situation, though, again, not only did Pharaoh's daughter not carry out his order, but she, in fact, did exactly the opposite she was supposed to do from her father, right? And she ends up adopting the Hebrew boy as her own, right? He Exodus 2.10. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. And the princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Right? I mean, she goes from one extreme, right? And this is plan from her dad, all the way to the other extreme. And guess what? Now Moses is being raised in the palace this Hebrew boy that was supposed to be killed by his order is now eating dinner at his table. Right? And see how God works? Right? And not only do we see this, though, and I think when we look at this verse, right, the incredible thing about this verse is not the fact, not the irony. Not, I mean, those are all pretty incredible things. Okay, but when we look at this, though, is we realize right, that this means that Moses was raised in the palace. Because what was God's plan for Moses? Okay, again, I'll just, just spoiler alert, right? Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. Okay, and God started preparing Moses for that role from the very moment he was born. Because Moses was raised in the palace. Right? He, Moses heard conversations that he should have never heard. Right? Moses grew up, his entire childhood was a lesson in front of him on how to lead a nation. And he wasn't even supposed to be there. 
right? I mean, he observed things that he should have never had access to otherwise, right? God put him there on purpose to prepare him to fulfill his purpose that God needed him to fulfill in his life. Again, as I look back at, at that and, and we realize how God was preparing Moses to lead a nation from the very beginning of his life. Right? And, and again, a big picture concept for us is that God has a purpose for your life. Okay? And he starts preparing you for that purpose long before you ever realize it. Just like he did for Moses. Again, I'll tell you, I look back at my own faith journey. And I realized, again, one of the things that I told God early in my life and my ministry career was, God, I'm never going to be a senior pastor. Oops. <laughs> right? But, again, I look back at that, and now I realize, though, again, as I, I, was, I, was, I thought I was going to youth ministry for my entire career, and I was happy doing that. Hey, but then, again, then I got this curveball from God, and all of a sudden I was an associate pastor at Cloverdale. It went I was looking for. And then I realized, again, six months into that job, then Oregon Trail comes to me and says, hey, we want you to think about being our senior pastor. And I'm like, no, thank you. Hey, but to say that is, I ended up literally being in that associate pastor role for exactly a year, one year to the day. Hey, and that was a role that I was not created for, right? Well, now, but I look back at that and realize, though, how important that year was in preparation to lead here. Right? Because in that year, again, I was in meetings that I was never in before. I was in conversations that I'd never been a part of as the youth pastor. Right? And, and I learned all kinds of things about how to, how to lead a church in that year. Right? And God was already preparing me right, for this role here before I ever realized it. Right? And God's doing the same for you. God has a purpose for your life. Hey, and it might not be you know, full-time ministry like mine, but... God has a purpose for your life, right? And, and God wants you to fulfill that purpose. Okay? And he has been preparing you for that purpose for a long time. And now you're faced with a decision. Are you going to make a godly wise one? Right, well, go back and see step number one. All right, what's going to be your reaction? Will you fulfill the purpose God has for your life? I hope you will. And if you don't know what the first step of that purpose is, I will tell you, the first step of that purpose is receiving Christ as your Savior and doing life on, by his power, not your own. Right? Submitting to his plan. Right? And once you join the journey of faith, then we constantly seek the Lord and say, now what's, what's the next step, God? What are you preparing me for? How do I fulfill the purpose that you've put on my life to build your kingdom, not mine? As we think about all of this, right, the, the, these incredible lessons, right, that we learned before Moses was even born, it just brings me to my final thought today, and it comes out of Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. There are plans for good and not for disaster, to, for, to give you a future and a hope. Again, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey today, but if you're here in person or if you're watching online, I know that you want to have hope for the future. And guess what? God wins. His plan is going to play out no matter what. Will you be on his side? Surrender your life to Christ, right? Surrender to the next step of your journey, whatever that is, just take that step. 
Lord God, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for your plan. God, we thank you that you are with us no matter what we face. And God, we pray, Lord, that as we face different decisions in our life, whether it's the monumental decision of receiving you as our Savior, into taking the next step of our journey, Lord, towards setting us free through your Spirit, God, we pray that we'll always make wise decisions. God, that we'll make walk with you and your Spirit. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you for all you do. And God, we ask that as we go this week, God, that we would fulfill the purpose you have for us. God, we give you our heart. And God, we pray that you would take that, Lord, and you would multiply it with your power. Lord, that you would give us your provision, give us your leading, God, and, and guide us through every step. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. Guide us as we go this week and as we live our faith every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.